You're listening to the Forefront Church Sermon Podcast. Forefront Church is a progressive Christian community more interested in asking good questions than having all the right answers. Thanks for listening. created the heavens and earth. All you see, all you don't see. Earth was a soup of nothingness, a bottomless emptiness, an inky blackness. God's spirit brooded like a bird above the watery abyss. God spoke. Light. And light appeared. (laughs) God saw that light was good and separated light from dark. God named the light day, they named the light the the dark night. It was evening, it was morning, day one. God spoke again. Sky in the middle of the waters, separate water from water. And there it was. God spoke again. Separate water beneath heaven, gather into one place, land appear. And there it was. God saw that it was good. Mm, That's good. God... (laughs) God spoke again. Earth, green up. Grow all varieties of seed-bearing plants, every sort of fruit-bearing tree. And there was. God saw that it was good. God spoke again. Lights, come out. Shine in heaven's sky. Separate day from night. Mark set seasons and days and years. Lights in heaven, sky, give light to earth. And there it was. God saw that it was good. God spoke again. Swarm ocean with fish and all sea life. Birds fly through the sky over earth. And there it was. God saw that it was good. God blessed them. Prosper, reproduce, fill oceans. Birds reproduce on earth. And God spoke again. Earth, generate life. Every sort of kind of cattle, reptiles, and wild animals, all kinds. And there it was. God spoke yet again. Let us make human beings in our image. Make them reflect our nature so that they can be responsible for the fish of the sea, the birds in the air, and the cattle, and yes, earth itself, and every animal that moves in the face of the earth. And then God blessed them. Prosper. Reproduce. Fill earth. Take charge. Be responsible for the fish in the sea and the birds of the air for every living thing that moves on the face of the earth. And then God said again, I have given you every sort of seed-bearing plant on earth and every kind of fruit-bearing tree, given them to you for food, to all animals and all birds, everything that moves and breathes. I give whatever grows out of the ground for food. And there it was. God looked over everything they had made. It was so good. So very good. It was evening. It was morning. Day six. Thank you, Angela. Good morning, everybody. My name is Benny. I'm so happy to be with all of you. 
Uh, my pronouns are he, him, his. My brother Tom and I often catch ourselves uh, trying to explain a feeling or thought. And with, you know, a term or a word will come up that we've encountered growing up in church that just doesn't resonate. It doesn't resonate because the word's associations are with structures and traditions that we are now critical of. It just doesn't feel right. So we promise each other that we'll look for new language. Sometimes new language might present itself on the spot or, and we'll claim it. Or we might just slightly shift a word. Um, take understanding. You've heard that word a million times probably. Now think of it with a hyphen in the middle. Understanding. For me, I get a mental image of Atlas, you know, the titan in Greek mythology that holds the earth on their shoulders. I also think of the burden of understanding, the existential weight of perceiving someone else's pain, or comprehending a fraction of the complexity of what it takes to flush all the toilets in Manhattan. <laughs> Today, I want us to think about language because I think it's a great way to simplify, clarify, and expand our understanding of prayer. I also want us to open our minds to how language is not just words we speak or write. More on that as we go. Here we go. We read portions of the first chapter in Genesis from a very liberal English translation called The Message. Let's remember that Genesis is an origin myth, a story trying to explain what life is, not just how life started. I just want to point out that the way they illustrate God creating the world is through speech. And God said, light. And then it became. God just spoke things into existence, evidently. Or at least, that's the image that the Hebrews chose to represent this mystery. Let's remember the magic a little bit of language. Let's remember the mystery of language. God said that we were made in their image. And I imagine that includes a shared ability to conjure things with language. But I, you can imagine or remember what it was like to you before you could use words. You, you know, it's hard for us to remember. So I asked our good friend, Deacon Jim, if he would share a bit about his communication with his 11-month-year-old son, Hale. Jim, how does Hale communicate to you? Kind of a combination of pointing and reading his moods. Uh, so if he's smiling and he's giggling, he enjoys what's going on. If he's crying, obviously, or rubbing his eyes or pushing things away, it means he does not want whatever is going on to continue going on. You, in, you interpret a lot of what Hale communicates to you, and a lot of it's without words, so how do you communicate to Hale? Well, despite the fact that he doesn't speak, we largely communicate to him through language because we understand that exposure to it is important to his development. If he is cranky or crying, we try to be very calm with him to let him know, like, you know, everything's okay, just calm down, everything will be fine and, and everything will be sorted out. If we are happy to see him, we make it known through wide gestures, big facial expressions, and high pitches that we are very happy to see you today, yay! <laughs> I think there's a lot of understanding to be had when you compare communication between parent and child with our dialogue with God. Jim later talked about how it's a bit of a guessing game to understand each other without words, and yet communication happens. Needs are met, and love is shared. 
Just like Jim has wordless communication with his son, Robin Wall Kimmerer talks about the language of plants being wordless in her book, Braiding Sweetgrass. She says, I've lain among ripening pumpkins and heard creaking as the parasol leaves rock back and forth, tethered by their tendrils, when lifting their edges and easing them down again. A microphone in the hollow of the swelling pumpkin would reveal the pop of seeds expanding and the rush of water filling succulent orange flesh. These are sounds, but not the story. Plants tell their stories not by what they say, but by what they do. What if you were a teacher but had no voice to speak your knowledge? What if you had no language at all and yet there was something you needed to say? Wouldn't you dance it? Wouldn't you act it out? Wouldn't your every movement tell a story? In time, you would become so eloquent that just to gaze upon you would reveal it all. And so it is with these silent green lives. Plants speak in a tongue that every breathing thing can understand. Plants teach in a universal language. Food. Speaking of food, can you imagine the pain of not being able to tell your parent what food it is you're really craving? And then imagine the unspeakable joy of identifying and achieving an intelligible version of ice cream. <laughs> like I said, language is magic. It can make ice cream appear out of thin air. Now, I want to be careful as we dance around our understanding of prayer. We don't have to capture a definition of prayer or identify and classify its effects. In fact, we all know that just saying or praying or screaming ice cream doesn't reliably produce pints of chunky monkey. So what if we just sit a bit in the mystery of prayer? Can we recognize and be okay with our limited understanding of prayer? I know that involves some trust or even faith. And we might feel like we've lost or moved on from. That's okay. That's okay too. I asked our friend Suzanne to share a bit about her communication with little Elsie and June, who are two and five years old. Why, why don't you give Elsie or June everything they ask for? We try to give them everything they ask for emotionally. Our love is un unconditional, would never, you know, hugs, kisses, comfort, all those things. We try to never withhold that. Even if they're behaving in a way that could be seen as naughty, usually it's the child's only way to cry out for, I need love, I need attention. And when it comes to material things, you know, we like to keep things fun and they want to go to Target and get a little toy or something like that. Like we don't try to totally deprive it, but we also really try to model contentment to them and model that we have more than we could ever possibly need already. What do you do to try and help them when they can't understand your reasoning? With Elsie, I mean, I'm honest with her. So if it's like, you know, she wants ice cream, there's a, a cart at the end of her street outside her school. Like we might do that a couple times a week. If I think it's just simply she wants ice cream and I truly think it's not a good time for ice cream and there's nothing else going on, it's just simply the child wants ice cream and I tell her no, then I let her sit in the like disappointment and discomfort a little bit. Like I keep, I talk with her and I sit with her and we talk through it. It doesn't mean I then give her what she wants, but I don't let her just be upset and sit in that by herself. Now 
I know in part, then I shall know fully, even as I am fully known. That's 1 Corinthians. We often don't understand, but we're to trust that God is taking care of us in all of it. As we grow up, we grow into more understanding and advance our language ability. We soon learn that certain words can provoke more than just ice cream from our parents. In hindsight, we all know how misleading sticks and stones will break my bones, but words can never hurt me is. But in fact, you know, the idiom actually belies the truth that words can and often do have power over how we feel and our ability to survive. Language has power. Another story from Genesis, Tower of Babel. It again emphasizes the importance and power of language. It says in Genesis 11, At one time the whole earth spoke the same language. Then they said, Come, let's build ourselves a city and a tower that reaches the heaven. Let's make ourselves famous so we won't be scattered here and there across the earth. God came down to look over the city and the tower those people had built. God took one look and said, One people, one language, why... This is only the first step. No telling what they'll come up with next. They'll stop at nothing. Come, we'll go down and garble their speech so they don't understand each other. Then God scattered them from there all over the world. And they had to quit building the city. That's how it came to be Babel. Because there God turned their language into Babel. Now, I've been rethinking the story of Babel lately. And the way that God speaks to the people doesn't sound like the loving parent I imagine God to be. Those silly little humans, who do they think they are with that tower? Watch. Let's go confuse them and teach them a lesson. Is it Danny DeVito voice? <laughs> but really, who, who was telling this story? Who was telling this story in the, in the Hebrew Bible? A little of my rethinking parallels my rethinking about structures of power. Earlier this year, I read a book called The Dawn of Everything by David Weber and David Wengro, an anthropologist and archaeologist. The book tackles our assumptions about prehistory, both academic and common sense notions. The Davids write about periodization in history. And it becomes apparent that accounts of history favor those, those in power, favor the periods of those in great power, even if just by quantity of data. Are we surprised? <laughs> no. So I started to think, Maybe the people actually building the Tower of Babel didn't want or need the tower. Maybe, you know, reading the book made me see maybe the Dark Ages weren't actually so chaotic. Maybe they were fairly peaceful and without tyrants. <laughs> There's much more in the David's book to support that theory at certain points in history. In researching and looking around about language, I found a quote from Toni Morrison, but I also discovered her lecture upon receiving the Nobel Prize for Literature in 1993. She also questions typical reading of the Babel story. She says, the conventional wisdom of the Tower of Babel story is that the collapse was a misfortune, that it was a distraction or the weight of many languages that precipitated that tower's failed architecture. That one monolithic language would have expedited the building and heaven would have been reached. Whose heaven, she wonders. And what kind? Perhaps the achievement of paradise was premature 
a little hasty if no one could take the time to understand other languages, other views, other narratives, period. Had they, the heaven they imagined might have been found at their feet. Complicated, demanding, yes, but a view of heaven as life, not heaven as post-life. One monolithic language, huh? Sounds pretty ridiculous if I, if I say, we must all use the same English corporate speak or nothing will get accomplished. And yet so much of our world and structures of power coerce us into just that notion. Okay, so we've got an Old Testament story about different languages that end in confusion. Let's jump to the New Testament and the account of Pentecost. After Jesus dies, he resurrects, he appears to his followers, and one of the things he says is that they will receive power when the Holy Spirit comes on them. They will be his witnesses in Jerusalem, in all of Judea and Samaria, and to the ends of the earth. You remember the Babel story, how it ended? From, it said, from there the Lord scattered them all over the face of the whole earth. Doesn't this sound familiar already? This is what happens in Acts 2. When the day of Pentecost came, they were all together in one place. Suddenly, a sound like the blowing of a violent wind came from heaven and filled the whole house where they were sitting. They saw what seemed to be tongues of fire that separated and came to rest on each of them. All of them were filled with the Holy Spirit and began to speak in other tongues as the Spirit enabled them. Now they were staying in Jerusalem, God-fearing Jews from every nation under heaven. When they heard this sound, a crowd came together in bewilderment because each one heard their own language being spoken. Utterly amazed, they asked, aren't all these who are speaking Galileans? Then how is it each of us hears them in our native language? Parthians, Medes, Elamites, Mesopotamia, Judea, Cappadocia, Pontus, Asia, so many different people. They said, we hear them declaring the wonders of God in our own tongues. Amazed and perplexed, they asked one another, what does this mean? Wind, spirit, tongues of fire, language. Each one heard their own native language. It's not as though the multi-ethnic crowd suddenly gained the ability to understand the Aramaic that the followers were native to. No, the account makes it clear that the Holy Spirit spoke in each person's own unique language. Institutions try to monopolize language. My brother Tom and I seek to make our own language that is unique to us. Language as resistance. Language that those institutions cannot understand. We labor for new language that shines in the darkness and the darkness has not overcome it. We are not the first people to resist by creating our own language. Even if I tried explaining some of the language to you, I'd fail at explaining what shipping and handling means or why we use it so often, why we say it. That's because the meaning of the phrase is actually wordless. We have assigned the phrase to our raw and unworded experiences and feelings. And it's built over time, every time we use it. And it's completely unique to the two of us. Not even our family claims to understand. We can do that because actually, language is nothing. Language is no thing. 
we can assign a different meaning to words because words aren't actually a thing. They can represent a thing, but they're not the thing itself. The word ice cream is just not as satisfying on my tongue as the actual frozen sweetened cow juice in a cone. <laughs> and our words change all the time. Walter J. Ong, he's an influential scholar on language and rhetoric. He began the first chapter of his final published book with this statement. Total verbal explicitness is impossible. We have a couple of resident lawyers in here, looking at you, Kelly and Rachel, who I'm sure could, what's the word, corroborate Ong's statement? Words are nothing. Words are wiggly and slippery and elusive. Often we struggle to find the words. We often try to rephrase what we're trying to communicate, dancing around a single meaning with a lot of different words. If it's so difficult to communicate clearly with consistency, why do we communicate at all? I asked her friend Juby a few difficult questions about her communication with her two daughters, her two teenage daughters, Asha and Lila. What do you wish your child, both Asha and Lila, communicated to you, but maybe struggle to? You know, they're coming into their own. They're learning how to trust themselves. They have some opinions about me that may or may not be true, and so they withhold themselves. So it's not one specific thing that I wish they would tell me. I think it's a state. It's like a being that I want them to be vulnerable with me because they think that I'm going to react in a certain way or I'm going to say something that might be something they don't agree with or make them feel shameful in some way, or I don't know, they have all these ideas. That's not how I would like to respond to them. Like, I want to only respond to them with love, support, and help. What helps you when you feel disconnected to them? <laughs> this is so cliche <laughs> because it's like the evangelical answer to everything, but um, it's scheduling time with them. <laughs> Your youth group pastor was right. <laughs> I find ways to just be with them. Like, I find ways to either tell them we're doing this at this time, it's family time, or, you know, I'll take them to practice, or we'll walk together somewhere. They don't open up unless they, there's extended time for us to be together. Because their tendency, again, they're figuring stuff out on their own, and they're leaning on their friends, they're creating a tribe, it's all developmentally correct. And so for me to step in and have a relationship with them, I have to be with them. How many times have you said to your parents, you don't understand? <laughs> How often do we avoid talking with God because of our preconceived ideas about God? More of Toni Morrison's words. Word work is sublime because it is generative. It makes meaning that secures our difference, our human difference, the way in which we are like no other life. We die. That may be the meaning of life, but we do language. That may be the measure of our lives.
Many of us know through professional therapy that an early step towards healing or merely coping is just being able to name a trauma. We're often still in pain when we're diagnosed, but naming the illness opens the possibility of addressing what is causing the pain. In the Genesis story, God implores the first humans to name what they see, just like God named things as they created the light and the waters and the land and the plants. My brother and I have been word working for a while now. Every time we say shipping and handling, we are remembering all the previous times we've used it and those attendant memories. We are remembering, refleshing, renewing, reaffirming our shared meaning. We are re-embodying that meaning. Shipping and handling sounds so silly, but the wealth of connection and comfort it conjures for both of us is overwhelming. Words have no meaning if they are not shared. I mean it. What's the point of saying a word if there's no one to share the meaning of the word with, the agreed meaning? I know I really didn't have to go through all the trouble of this sermon just to tell you something simple that you already know. Words connect us. John's gospel begins by invoking the Genesis story and connecting it with Jesus. Again, the importance of words is not to be missed. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was with God in the beginning. Through him all things were made. Without him nothing was made that has been made. In him was life, that life was the light of all mankind. The light shines in the darkness, and the darkness has not overcome it. If anything connects the existential bewildering vortex of my brain to the existential bewildering vortex of your brain, <laughs> it's the spirit that created us all. I can't crawl into your brain, and you can't read my mind, but we can speak to each other. We are always connected to God, and God connects us. The Word is God. Later, John says the Word became flesh and made his dwelling among us. Language is God embodied. God became flesh as Jesus, but also, mysteriously, the meaning here seems to be that language becomes something more than no thing. It becomes in the body. Mysterious, right? All I'm trying to say is this. You are already in prayer all the time. Just being alive. Your body is wrapped in the language of many relationships. Your body circulating blood, converting oxygen, inhaling, exhaling, eating and drinking, harvesting the calories of your food, expelling waste. Yes, your, your shit is prayer too. <laughs> Walking, dancing, sleeping, dreaming, copulating. The pain in your limbs, the pain in your heart. Yes, everything your body has and feels in each season is part of the prayer. Now, I want you to direct your mind to your body and choose how you will be. Make your prayers with intention and desire. Open your prayers to the still, small voice. Dialogue with your creator. Tell them how thankful you are, how angry you are, how in love you are, how lonely you are, how happy you are, how confused you are. 
and speak it in your language. The secret language that only you and God share. The language that you've slowly built over the course of a lifetime. The language that grows from experience and learning. The language that is so uniquely you that no one else can conjure it like you do. Speak it and live. I hope hearing a bit of my language today inspires you to speak your own. As it is spoken, so shall it be. I'm going to close in prayer. God, thank you for today. I'm so filled today with everybody around. Thank you for this space. We thank you for our bodies. We thank you for our minds. And we thank you for words, for language, the way we dance it, the way we sing it, the way we be language. Help us <laughs> to toss maybe some of our preconceived notions about you to the side for a second and just speak. Just speak honestly and truly and just be present and vulnerable. We know you love us and we are loved in you. In Jesus' name I pray, amen. Thank you. Thanks for listening to the Forefront Sermon Podcast. To learn more about Forefront and how we're ushering in the next 500 years of Christianity, visit ForefrontChurch.com.